0: Amen. Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the Word of the living God. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. This is the word of the living God, and we say, Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Now, O Lord, We ask that you would, by your spirit, work in our hearts. We pray that the preaching of the word of Christ would be Christ's word to his people this day. Give us what we need to preach it and to hear it aright. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The story that we are looking at today in Exodus chapter 3 is a true story but it's a story that happened as part of a larger story a larger story that two of our brothers have already mentioned in their prayers for eventually the people that Moses would use or you be used to lead out of slavery in Egypt would be the people from whom the Christ would come so exodus is our story it's a picture of part of our family being brought out of slavery but it's a picture for us that we might see Christ. The whole Bible, really, from Genesis to Revelation, is a picture of the work of Jesus Christ. As we walk through this chapter today, Lord willing, I want us to see four things. Perhaps four ways to divide chapter 3, but also four lessons as we think about what's happening in this passage of Scripture. So firstly then, a lesson for us is that we must meet God With a proper response. We must meet God with a proper response. Now, notice what we've just read. Moses is tending the flock of Jethro, his father in law, given a different name in a previous chapter. Remember, Moses is now, as it were, away from the people of God. He is married, he spends a generation of time away from the Hebrews in Egypt. We're told in verse 1 that he comes to Horeb, the mountain of God. If you continue to read in the pages of Scripture, Horeb, boys and girls, would also be another name for Mount Sinai. This is going to be very important because something else is going to happen on this same mountain many years later. But in verse 2, he has a visit. And this visit is from none other than God himself verse 2 and the angel of the lord appeared to him in a flame of fire this is a visible manifestation of god theologians call this a theophany you don't have to know that word but a a showing up of god as it were visibly some people call it a christophany a showing up of the second person of the Trinity prior to the birth of Christ many years later. But what's important for us, however we parse this out, is that Moses is met with God. And here, God has a message for Moses. Now notice what's interesting is that this manifestation of God is in a bush that's burning, but a bush that is not burned up. Theologians point out that throughout Scripture, fire often represents God's presence. Here, this showing up of God comes in the form of a flame of fire. The Puritan Matthew Poole says this, which doubtless represented the condition of the church and the people of God, who were now in the fire of affliction, yet so as that God was present with them, and that they should not be consumed in it, whereof this vision was a pledge. So maybe the fire was because of what they were going through, or maybe it's one of several instances in Scripture where fire represents the presence of God. Our God is a consuming fire, the Scripture says. But notice, God comes to meet with Moses. But we must meet God with a proper response. This story will become famous for the people of God. It will be referenced later in Scripture. For instance, listen to how this situation is referenced in Deuteronomy chapter 33 verse 16. God speaking in the Scriptures, He says this, with the precious things of the earth and its fullness and the favor of Him who dwelt in the bush. God becomes known to the Hebrews as the God who dwelt in the bush. To give Moses the mission of being used to free his people from Egypt. But let's talk then about a proper response. So far we've heard Moses turning aside, verse 4, curious about this. The bush is on fire, but it's not burning? Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Verse 5. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Notice the response. Firstly, he's given a command. Moses, the ground on which you stand is holy ground. It is ground set apart. It is ground where I am meeting with you. Due to the sinfulness of every human being, the holiness of God, there's a preparation that is in view. And what's interesting is if you trace this idea of taking your shoes off in the Old Testament... Because you're standing on holy ground. This is not the only time that that happens. Let me just give you one instance and then list several others. Turn over to 2 Samuel for just a moment. 2 Samuel 15, verse 30. We often think of taking sandals off our feet because the ground is holy as a Moses thing, but it actually happens in multiple places throughout the Old Testament. Second Samuel 15, verse 30, So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept, and he went up, and he had his head covered and went barefoot. The same thing happens in Isaiah 20, verse 2. Ezekiel 24, verses 17 and 23. The ground on which you are standing is holy ground. You are sinful. There is this recognition of preparation to meet with God. Exodus 30 points to the possible evidence that the Levitical priests throughout the Old Testament work of sacrifices may have indeed undertaken their work, at least in part, in barefoot fashion. The ground on which you stand is holy. Take off your sandals. Now, notice Moses' posture, verse 6. Moreover, he said, And then we're given who God is. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. A question for us this Lord's day. Do we have this same reverence when we hear God's voice? When we hear the word of Christ preached, when we read the scriptures, do we have the same kind of reverence? The same kind of reverence which says this is our God and he is speaking to us. Not that we are hiding from him in shame, There's a proper response. We don't gather every Lord's Day and sit in seats or pews and see a burning bush that's burning but is not burned up. But every time the Word of God is opened before us, God speaks to us. Do we have the same kind of reverential awe that Moses had? You see, we must meet God with a proper response. God gives the terms. Moses responds. As we'll see in just a few moments, every last one of you in this room is called to meet your creator, God. And you must meet him with the proper response. You must come through his son, Jesus Christ. But the first lesson that we see is that we must meet God with a proper response. Moses knows that this is the voice of God, that God is holy, that God has been named as the one who's made promises to his forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the true and living God. I dare not even look upon God. We live in a day where we treat very casually the things of God, the word of God, the worship of God. such that if God were to call us to do certain things because God is holy, we might even kind of snub our nose at such a thing. But not in this instance, and not with Moses. He hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. We must meet God with the proper response. But secondly, in our text this morning, I think we see this. We must trust God to provide what we need We must trust God to provide what we need. Now for that, let's keep going in the story. Verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. So he said, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. In this section of the story, I think we see that we must trust God to provide what we need. Firstly, look in verses 7 through 9. God says, I know the trouble of my people. Do we believe that God actually knows our troubles and our needs, our challenges? God says, I have come down. Not that boys and girls God left heaven and came down to earth. It's his way of saying, I am making my presence known in the midst of your struggles. You are slaves and you will not be free without me. So God calls Moses to a task in verse 10. Here's what I want you to do, Moses. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. That's the task. Moses' answer, I'm afraid, is not the answer that many of us would offer. Who am I? Who am I? Perhaps his response is partly because of previous failures. Perhaps he knows that he's a wanted man in Egypt killing an Egyptian, or perhaps it was due to his great humility. You turn over a few books, listen to the way that Moses is described in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3. Now, the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. So perhaps in his humility, Moses is saying to the living God who's telling him that I have a task for you. Who am I? Now notice the Lord's answer. Let's survey for a few moments what the Lord could have said to Moses. Well, Moses, you have a series of talents which I would like to capitalize on. Moses, your resume is good. You were trained in the best schools of Egypt. Egypt is the greatest place in the world right now. It's your resume, your CV. Moses, you're good with people. I've got a plan for you. Moses, I know how good your heart is, how humble you are. I need a humble man on my team, Moses. God didn't say any of those things. What does God say? To Moses in verse 12. I will certainly be with you. In one sense, it's not about Moses. It's about the God who's with him. The same was the case for Joseph, by the way. If you read Genesis and you read the story of Joseph, over and over and over the refrain is that God was with Joseph. You're nothing without me, but I will certainly be with with you, The answer to how you could possibly do what God has called you to do in this life is that God is with you. The laborer who builds a house labors in vain if the Lord does not build it. Notice the connection, though, between God's answer to Moses and the name that God reveals to Moses in just a moment. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but what does he say? Moses says, what's your name? Who should I tell them your name is? I am who I am. The answer to your question about how you're going to do this is that I am with you. I am the God who simply is. God's identity is always in view when we consider what he calls us to do. If you go in the name of a weak God, you are going on a fool's errand. If you are serving in this life in a variety of ways, the idols of your heart, they will fail you. But if the living God is with you, you will have all that you need. A second lesson then for us is we must trust God to provide what we need. Now notice the ultimate purpose. Yes, the purpose, Moses, is that you will be used so that Pharaoh will hear my voice. Yes, you will be used to free my people. But notice, God fast-forwards all the way to the end, doesn't he? I will certainly be with you. This shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. The goal, Moses is that people will serve me. Now, none of us should think that God is going to speak to us tomorrow or Tuesday or Wednesday through a burning bush, but God does speak to us through His Word. None of us should think that God is choosing us to be a shadow of the Christ to come to bring people out of Egypt. But the living God does indeed have plans for us. Ephesians 2 says that we are saved in part that we may walk in the good works that God has ordained for us. It's not a bad question to ask, who am I? Any Bible reader worth his or her salt will come to the conclusion that God's grace is completely unmerited. Who am I that you would lavish me with the blood of your Son and forgive my sins? Who am I that you would... Create in me a new heart. Who am I that you would sanctify me and set me apart to serve your people through good works? Oh, well, God says to you, Christian, I will certainly be with you. We must trust God to provide what we need. What has he called you to? Think rightly. Think soberly. What has he called you to? You may say, I'm not sure. Well, look at your circumstances. Do you have a husband or a wife? He's called you to love your wife as Christ loved the church. He's called you to submit to your husband as unto the Lord. Do you have children? He calls you to raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And there are days where you think, who am I that you should give me these? (laughs) I will certainly be with you. What has he called you to? I have lost neighbors. Ah, they don't want to hear about you, Lord. (laughs) Who am I that you would put these lost neighbors next to me, Lord? Sitting in the cubicle next to me, Lord, is the pagan atheist who hates your name and taunts me about you because he knows that I go to church. I will certainly be with you. You see, who God is, is more than enough for us to know that he will provide for what we need. But there's a third lesson if we keep moving, and that is that we must know God as he reveals himself. Now, some of you might be new to Christianity, and you may have gotten the message that Christianity is a religion of love. And you may have gotten the message that, I see what this is. All of us have faults. There's a God who loves everyone, and His church is used to kind of make us all be less bad. And really, in the end, all the roads of religion in this world lead to the top of the same mountain. Everyone's going to be okay in the end. The Scripture reveals to us that we must know God. And in John chapter 17, we read how we come to know God. Only in Jesus Christ. This is eternal life, that they may know you, Jesus prays, and the one that you've sent. So if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't trusted in Jesus for forgiveness of sins, if you haven't wrapped your arms around him by faith alone, then you don't know God. How are we getting this from this passage? Well, Moses says, who are you? Let's keep reading, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, "'Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, "'The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. "'This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. "'Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, "'The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me, saying, "'I have surely visited you and have seen what is done to you in Egypt.'" And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt and you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. We learn something about God here. Part of the learning that we undertake is that we must know God as he reveals himself. So how does he reveal himself? I am who I am. A lot of human beings say that today, don't they? I just just am who I am. (laughs) No, you're not. Only God can say, I am who I am. His name reveals several things about who He is. Theologians down through the ages have made this argument, but this name reveals that God is self existent. He just is. You see, you and I require things in order to be, don't we? Food, water, biological parents, air to breathe. God does not, He simply is. I am. Secondly, God defines himself. He defines himself as simply the one who is. Now, no offense to you or to me, but if you were not here any longer, we would would grieve, but existence would continue to exist. God is the only one who can simply say, I am I am simply He who exists. Augustine in the 400s, our brother in the faith from a time gone past, said this means that God is unchanging. I am who I am. There's no changing with God. The irony is that this this title for God, I am who I am, we could spend all afternoon talking about what that may mean. God is self-existent God defines himself God is unchanging here's another one God is the source of all things listen to the early church historian Eusebius commenting on this passage he says quote everything that has ever existed or now exists derives its being from the one the only existent and pre-existent being who also said I am the existent as the only being and the eternal being he is himself the cause of all Existence to all those to whom he has imparted existence from himself by his will and his power, and gives existence to all things and their power and their forms richly and ungrudgingly from himself. You don't have existence, friend, apart from God giving it to you. I am who I am. Do you know the God of Scripture? Do you know what it is to form false pictures of something and worship it? Idolatry. Get to know the God of Scripture. The the great I am, the one who is self-existent, who defines himself, who is unchanging. This would be very important for what we will see in just a few chapters. Because they're the gods of Egypt. Egypt will be seen to be false, to be weak, to be limited. But the great I Am will seem to be the victor over the false gods of Egypt. But you know, this name is going to show up later in Scripture. The great I Am. This name finds expression elsewhere in the pages of Scripture. Let me just give you two examples. Firstly, all the way at the end of the Bible, Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. There we read this in verse 4. This is after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and ascension. Several decades later, when through one of his disciples, John, he's given a picture of what all of history is going to look like. Revelation 1 verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And can we ever think of any other person in Scripture who would make such a statement? This name shows up. In John's gospel, John chapter 8, verse 58, there we read this. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, were nipping at Jesus' heels as they were always wont to do. Jesus answers them and says, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Some have made the argument that when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, when asked who Jesus was, which one of you is He? He stands forward and says, I am He. And there's this visible tremble. We must know God as He reveals Himself. The one God who exists forever and eternally. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At a moment in time, dwelt among us. The eternal Son of God put on flesh. And he uses this very ancient and trusted name. I am. Do you know God? Do you know God? You may say, well, I, I think so. I read my Bible. I pray. I go to church. I, I sing. No, do, do you know God. Have you come to see that Christ is the way for anyone and only the way for anyone to know God? To know that the eternal God who created all things perfectly in the space of six days says that to each of us who are in Adam, we're sinners. We're separated from him. If you know God, then you know that God says of you that you are separated from God in your own record because of your sin. If you know God, you you know that God in love and mercy sent his son to save many. If you know God, then you know that this Christ that was sent, who calls himself, I am, lived a perfect life, perfectly obeying the law of God, and died on a cross according to his humanity. That he stands at the corridor of time and says to any who have ears to hear, Come to me, God, and I will give you sinners rest. Come to me and my blood will fully atone for all of your sins. If you know God, then you know these things. If you know God, then you know that this unchanging, self-existent God who defines himself, who needs nothing else in order to exist... For no other reason than His sheer mercy and grace has offered sinners eternal life. This is what the book of Exodus really is moving us to. That the God who says, I am who I am, sends His Son to stand before all of humanity and say, I am. And I will receive you. Now, Moses is given a mission We've already discussed what his mission is, but in 15 and beyond, God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go speak to the Hebrews. Eventually, they will believe you. Then take the elders of Israel with you and go to Pharaoh, and he will not listen to you. You see, God knows all things before they happen. Notice in verse 18, something perhaps peculiar. Then they will Heed your voice and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt and you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us and now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Why three days? Well, we'll read elsewhere that the Hebrews will know that the sacrifices that they will offer to the true and living God will not meet with the approval of the Egyptians And there are particular religious codes. So that's part of it. But wasn't it Abraham who went three days journey to sacrifice Isaac? And will there ever be anyone else in Scripture that will spend three days, as it were, before there is vindication of their sacrifice? Well, Yes, Christ will make sacrifice. And on the third day, all will be vindicated here we see this request and it will be denied for a time so what have we seen so far boys and girls in this story we've seen that we must meet God in the right way with the proper response secondly we must trust God to provide all that we need and thirdly We must know God as he reveals himself. Well, finally, and as we close, let me offer this. We must look to God for future grace. Look at the last few verses of this chapter, verse 20. So I will stretch out my hand. Now he's saying this, God, to Moses, because he has just said, the king of Egypt will not let you go. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders which I do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians." Not only am I going to bring you out, but I'm going to bring you out of slavery as kings of wealth. Notice what verses 20 to 22 declare to Moses in advance. The outcome. God who knows the end from the beginning is not only going to bring them out, but he's going to provide for them. This isn't about them becoming rich. This is about them having riches to provide for the long journey, the decades of travel The winding roads of moving this people to the promised land. Verse 22. You shall plunder the Egyptians. In other words, I will bring you out and I will provide for you. Do you trust that the living God who called you to himself by his spirit through the person and work of Christ will provide for you? Until you are in the promised land. Do you trust that the God who says that He is the great I am will provide for you spiritually every last day of your life? Doesn't God say to you when you look at Him and say, Who am I that I should mortify sin by your grace? Who am I that I should look for ways out of temptation? What does he say? I will provide an escape for you in the midst of temptation. Think about who you are, Christian, and think about the New Testament. How many times God says to Christians, I will provide for you. I will do this. I will accomplish this. No, you shouldn't expect that a people group in Egypt is going to give you riches on your way through the Red Sea. But you should expect, I should expect, because of who God is and because God is with us in Christ, that he will provide for us every last day of our lives. Shouldn't we expect this when he tells us, this is how you pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. If you don't give me bread, I won't have it, Lord. Do you think our God's so stingy and so evil that he will actually ask you to pray to him and he will say, no, I'm not going to provide for you? No. We must look to God moment by moment for future grace. What is before you? Maybe it's a physical thing. Will God provide for you in the midst of disease? Will God provide for you as you care for someone else in your family who's suffering? Will God provide for you When trials come your way? You see, he may not provide to you according to the way you've prayed for provision. And he may not answer your prayers the way that you think he should answer your prayers. But there will not come a single day on the other side of eternity where you will look back and say, God was stingy with me. And he held out on me. And he didn't provide for me. No, Moses I'm going to send you and even the king of this world is going to say no. But I'm going to get it done. And you're going to leave and I'm going to provide for you. Has not our God through the blood of His Son freed you from your Egypt of sin? And will He not? As you take each day journeying to the celestial city, will He not make sure that you will even be able to take the plunderings of this world so that it may serve His purposes. John Chrysostom, preaching on this very text, in the early history of the church, said this. Listen to what Moses said about the Father. When he had inquired what he should answer, if he should be asked by the Egyptians who it was that sent him, he was bidden to say, he who is sent me. Now the words he who is means that he exists always and is without beginning and that he really exists and exists as Lord and Master. Causes us to ask the question, doesn't it, what's in a name Well, the name of our God reveals that he is and that all things belong to him. And that he will indeed keep his word to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to all who are in Christ. And he will provide for them, he will be with them, he will meet their needs. What's in a name? Everything. Let's pray. Living God, we thank you for your name. We pray that you would hallow it in our midst. That we would see that your name is not only who you are, but it also teaches us about how we can walk before you. You are the one to whom we pray this day, praying that you would meet our needs. Our greatest need is being freed from sin. And Lord, to each of us who are in Christ this day, you've done it. You've provided richly. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And for any in this room who are not in Christ this day, this word of offering of the gospel stands before them. I, the God who provide, will provide for you too in Christ if you come. Lord, each of us survey our lives, even this moment, and we see that we have great needs, we have uncertainties, we have doubts. We pray that you would remind us of who you are and that you will be with your people. And may that be a balm to our souls until we are with you, the one who dwelt in the bush face to face. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.